Consequences podcast with Paul McNulty, Sean McCreevy and special guest Mike Ferreri. Welcome, folks, to our fourth and final attempt to encapsulate the work of Godly and Cream in the 1980s. And we're going to be looking today at Goodbye Blue Sky, the last tangible project that Godly and Cream were ever involved with together, uh, according to what Kev Godley told us in Dublin. We welcome again from California, Mike Ferreri. Hello, Mike. Hello. Hi there. And Paul in Liverpool. Let's talk about Goodbye Blue Sky. Mike, you're a big fan of this record. I am. Um, I, I'd be interested to know what Kevin Godley had to say about it. I, You might want to sit back a few minutes and let me rip. I, I rate it slightly higher than Birds of Prey. Okay. Um, it's It's been a while since... It, it had been a while since the last Godley and Cream LP, so I was beyond excited, to say the least, when it appeared. Mm. Um and you may be surprised to hear me say this, but in a lot of ways, it seemed like an exclamation point for consequences to me. And let me explain that. I always viewed consequences as a last warning from the elements, you know, and Mr. Blint saves us all by calming nature, or at least it seems that way. And although musically, the two broad projects are not similar at all, excuse me, uh, Blue Sky certainly lyrically seemed to say, time's up. There's a finality to just about all the songs that really affected me. Uh, you know, come on, last page of history, it doesn't get much final than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a religious or spiritual chap, but uh, in my estimation, it borders on spiritual. I can't help, help feeling that most of the subject matter of Blue Sky, uh, they're really quite personal compositions as well. Um, not just to entertain people with a witty, you know, subject matter. But somebody, Kevin, I would assume, has some strong feelings about where we are in the world. I was just going to say, musically, I'm stunned by the originality of the album. Um, it, it doesn't sound like anything. Else. Never a fan of the harmonica. I mm. really don't like, aside from the Beatles, you know, Please Please Me or something like that. Snap. Leave it to Godly and Cream to make me a convert. And, uh, you know, and knowing from your conversation with Kevin that he and Lowell never wanted to repeat themselves, Goodbye, Goodbye Blue Sky is absolutely like, unlike anything they had done before to me. Um, the background singing by uh, Chambers, Helms, and Chandler is simply exquisite. And as I said, harmonicas. Whose idea was that? Stroke of genius. <laughs> it's certainly a total departure, isn't it, Mike, uh, from anything that, that, that they'd ever done before. And uh, and certainly talking to Kevin and reading the, the liner notes from Body of Work, it was clear that they wanted to do something completely different. And for whatever reason, and I don't know where this inspiration came from, they really fancied doing something with the harmonica, exploring what the harmonica could do. And again, like you, Mike, I'm really not overall on balance a fan of the harmonica, or at least the harmonica that, that Bob Dylan will blow and suck into. 
There are, there are some instances like what Larry Adler does is wonderful, fantastic. And, and there are wonderful moments on, on records where we hear the harmonica used really beautifully, <laughs> even on consequences, actually. <laughs> on, yeah. uh, on mobilization. Uh, There's a very poignant bit, isn't there, when Peter Cook's writing a letter home to, to Debbie and, and you've got Silent Night played on the harmonica. That's where I, I like it. Uh, it can be a very poignant instrument. My dearest Debbie, this is just to let you know that things are looking a trifle bleak. But this is an extremely different record for Godly and Cream. The first where they just tore up the rule book and fancied playing with a band. That That's right, although augmenting of that or playing with a band meant a different thing for Godly and Cream, as we'd expect from them. It, it mm. meant something more inventive. Uh, they didn't add to the rhythm section. They added three vocalists and a harmonica section. Um, it's a very interesting um, interview from 1988 from Norwegian TV on YouTube, which I looked okay. at a couple of days ago. And Lowell explains the audition process mm. uh, for the harmonica section. Just before I get into that, I wonder whether using harmonicas was a kind of um, carrying on from their um, interest in brass and saxophones. Because, mm. you know, the, instru the instruments are kind of related. They are, yeah, uh, there's reeds and everything. <laughs> And it's something that they couldn't play between the two of them. So m maybe that had something to do with it. But anyway, uh, in this interview, Lowell says that they they auditioned four harmonica players and they were all excellent players. But what they noticed was that two of them seemed to gel together. Um, and they, <clears throat> as they were sort of jamming at the, at the audition, as it were, one of them would provide a kind of rhythmic counterpoint to the others mm. soloing, and, and, and then they'd sort of cross over again. And those two guys, Mark Felton and Mick Gammon, they were the two guys they chose. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so it was interesting, that audition process, even that was uh, something outside the norm, and, 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 and the way the two played with each other, that, that, that meant they got the gig, as it were. So yes. I thought that was... Fascinating to hear Lowell explain the way that worked. Sure, and I, I, I bet that was the first time they'd ever auditioned anybody for an album, wasn't it? Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, yeah. They they met the the three vocalists that Mike just uh, talked about. Is it Jimmy Helms, Jimmy Chambers, and George? Can't read my own writing. George Chand Chandler's Chandler's. Chandler Chandler, I believe. Yes, Chandler. Yeah, yeah. Sorry if I'm getting the the guy's name wrong. Um, they were they were already a unit, weren't they? Called London. That's right. I've been thinking about you. Yeah, I, I didn't put that together until last night. I don't know whether you realise this, Sean. And this is a real nice story that uh, uh, Jimmy Helms, who I think wrote that song, and I assume sang lead on it. He'd been around uh, in the music business since like the 70s or even the 60s. He was in he, he was in musical theatre and stuff like that. Okay. And he wrote 
He wrote I've Been Thinking About You for, for London Beat, which became a US number one single and, and a UK wow. number two single at the age of 49. Wow. So uh, I thought that was, a, that was a really nice story. Brilliant. Didn't Kevin tell us that, that these were the guys who sang BVs for Paul Young? Oh, yeah, they, they were all over the place. They, 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 you know, as a unit, they, they, they were kind of session singers on, on so many, uh, so many, uh, you know, UK uh, records and possibly, you know, worldwide records. I don't really know. Yes, Paul Young, they, they met um, not at a, at a recording session, but at a video shoot, I think, um, for one of Paul Young's tracks. I, I know that Godlin Cream directed Everything Must Change, uh, in 1983 or four, okay. for, Paul, for Paul Young. So it may have been that one. I don't know whether they also um, also uh, directed other Paul Young videos, but I, I can hear that song in my mind. And there's a, it's a kind of soulful song, and, mm. and uh, that three that three piece section was certainly on that track. I think. And I think they've got amazing soulful voices. Paradoxically, they're they're one of my problem the problems I have with the album, uh, mm-hmm. to be honest. But we'll we'll come on to talk about individual tracks. Um, How and, dare and, you? Yes, uh, yes, and and the treatment of the songs around that apocalyptic theme, Mike, that you talked about. But mm-hmm. the, the harmonica the, and the relationship between the two harmonica players is is a really interesting one. I, I have to confess to to hating the harmonica of the kind of Neil Young, Bob Dylan ilk. <laughs> well, but, I agree. Yeah, I agree. But but loving the harmonica that we hear, for example, on the intro to "Benefit of Mr. Kite." And I know there's an answer on Pet Sounds where you hear that extremely rare. And, and I think wonderful sound of the bass harmonica. A very, very unusual sound. It's all over this album, and it, yeah. it, it it must be one of the albums where the bass harmonica features more than 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 ever. Well, if if I can just jump in there, another thing Lol explains in this interview is that these two guys weren't familiar, even though they were virtuoso harp players, they weren't familiar with playing the bass harmonicas, ah. and they but, but they got them to play them. <laughs> uh, so again, I like that kind of. That it's it's the it's the um, uh, it's the Bill Clark thing, isn't it? It's getting in this case the musicians to do something out of their comfort zone. Yes, um, there's a lovely re- picture on the inner sleeve, Paul, on the on the, the the vinyl inner sleeve. There's a picture uh, which I presume is of the two harp players holding this bass harmonica, which is about. 18 inches long it's huge yes yeah, massive isn't it yeah yeah and that one of them's kind of got his ear pressed to it another one's got his <laughs> mouth pressed to it uh probably thinking you know how do we get a, how do we get a note out of this thing uh, yeah i, I bet yeah. yeah i bet you have to blow it blooming hard um but it's it's an incredible sound and it it really does punctuate a number of the tracks uh, on the opening track for example that, that's no exception the, the bass harmonica on that is is so lovely. A little piece of heaven. When we're apart, I feel so alone. 
Mark Felton, uh, Felton, I'm sorry, just, uh, I don't know whether you're familiar with his work. I mean, I didn't clock the name, but I mean, you love Talk Talk, don't you, Sean? Yes, I do. He plays on all three of their best albums, Colour of Spring, Spirit of Eden and Laughing Stock. Oh, that's right, and it's amazing playing. He plays that, for example, that incredible solo, almost like an electric guitar on uh, Living in Another World. Yeah. And... And there's a couple of tracks that have got that kind of really aggressive, almost, you know, literally distorted sounds. Yeah, like them. a guitar, isn't it? Like in in The Rainbow, which is my, my probably my favourite Talk Talk track. Incredible right. sound. He plays with real emotion. Yeah, he, he sure does. It was a real masterstroke to get those two guys to play together. I'm not so familiar with uh, Mr. Gammon or Gammon, but um, mm. they, they, they make a, a great pairing between them. Yes, indeed. So, Mike, what's what's your take on, on harmonica playing in general on the album? On this album, I think it's just so inventive and so uh, risky. Uh, I'm like you. I can't really take Bob Dylan or Neil Young's. Eh, 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 eh. <laughs> this is so. It's such. It's so much more melodic, and the bass harmonica. I don't know that I ever. Uh, have you ever heard of the Harmonicats? I think they were from the forties. No. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, they use that kind of a. <laughs> <laughs> Which was really nice. It adds depth. It adds body. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm I really like what they did with the harmonicas on this album. Uh, just thrilled. Yeah, it's, it's it's fantastic. Listening to this album, which I do regularly and have done it ever since I bought it, and I bought it at the time, around '88, um, full of hope, like like you, Mike, and full of excitement. And part of me loved the directness of it the fact that it seemed to be about kind of normal songs in in a very much more standard, a standard format, drums, bass, guitars, and proper songs. But literally from the off, that heavy vibrato on the backing vocals, there was something about it that just annoyed me straight away. And throughout the album, their delivery, although brilliant in in that genre it's not to my my personal taste and i try and enjoy this album frequently and i always approach it with a a sense of of hope and kind of freshness i think oh yeah yeah i'll I'll play this one i know i'm going to enjoy it it's full of promise but somehow by the end of this album i always feel that it's a bit a bit sickly a bit too much if you're talking about the employment of the kind of vocal group there, yeah, well, I've got two things to say about that. One is, I wish it was Lowell singing, because <laughs> you can't hear him at all, but yes. I guess by that stage he's kind of abdicated that role. The second thing is, if you're going to let these guys sing, and they are superb singers, why not give them some leads? Mm. You know, I thought they could have let Helms or, you know, particularly all the other guys sing a lead or two. Um, you know, that, that would have been interesting, or even a partial lead, but they're, they're kind of hemmed in 
into their backing vocal role and they've got so much to offer you know that they're they're offering some uh, you know counterpoint lines and it's sometimes it's a bit much you've got them you've got the harmonicas weaving in and out mm. and although the actual instrumentation is relatively spare you know it's largely acoustic guitars you know uh, uh, a sort of uh, uh, fairly background bass and, and drums yes these other kind of mid-range elements all weaving around you know it can be a bit hard on the ears sometimes that's what i think takes a little piece of heaven Over the two sides of the album, it's a bit, a little bit grating. I can kind of take it and enjoy it a few songs at a time, but a whole album of it uh, just becomes a little bit too much for my ears. If they had come too much to the fore, I don't know if I would have accepted that. I need Kevin Godley and or low cream I, I don't know if i want you know having a female backup on lightning uh that's different yeah. but you know and uh, uh, the first very first h-e-v-h-e-a-v-e-n is kind of that you know where they're yeah. singing together yes. and then some singular singing there but uh, that's about all i would really want to hear from them personally yeah i think you've yeah. both got interesting points and paul i'm, I'm actually surprised to hear you say that you don't want Kevin Godley to sing lead on all the tracks. Well, now here's here's the thing. I mean, much as I think Kevin is a fantastic singer, amazing, it can get too much. I think I mentioned this on a pod long ago. His voice is a bit too rich or like chocolate. Mm. He mm. puts 110% into every song. That's why on on Ten CC, you know, when he was employed as a bit of a secret weapon, yes. it worked it worked brilliantly. And on some something like Consequences, it doesn't apply because there's so many instrumental. Pa- passages um but but you know birds of prey is an example and this is another example where kev is just singing lead on song after song after song and it's a it can be a little bit overpowering and so for that that reason much as i absolutely love him as a singer i I, it would have been you know appropriate for me i'd I'd have loved to hear uh, some of the other guys take a couple of leads just to just to kind of you know smooth it out a bit That's not a bad point, actually. It's it's almost like too much of a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, am, am I, am I uh, stating heresy there, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's actually a very, very good point. It, it, I can't think of bands off the top of my head. Well, maybe like Journey, where you have um, uh, what the hell's his name? Um, Steve Perry's. Steve Perry. Yeah. Sing song after song after song. It can yeah. get a little tiresome. Right. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, and he's, that's another very powerful voice, isn't it? That kind of, you know, the, the, and very recognizable. Sure, but uh, yeah. that's the strength of Ten CC. You had four so uh, singular singers going oh, at yeah. it. It was yeah, just yeah. so easy to take. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There's a little piece of heaven. Yeah, well, I, I think it should be noted. I mean, it's um, 
Well, for one thing, it was it was a hit not in either the US or the UK, but it was a hit in Germany and and the Netherlands. Yes, you know, that's two right. Ter- two territories that that loved Dolly and Creed mm. probably more than anywhere else. It's a kind of manifesto for their new sound, isn't it? Yeah. I, I like the way that it introduces the band's sound, if you like. Yeah. Um, I think it's inspired by Graceland. Mm. Not, it, it's a different kind of world music, but this, you know, the return to a simpler band-based or live-based songwriting, if you like. Yeah, and it's quite rootsy, isn't it? Especially the harmonicas kind of hark back to uh, America turn of the century, doesn't it, really? Yeah, that's right. But I think I think that I can hear a Graceland influence on that track. Yeah, particularly. That's a good um, point. Who'll be my role model now that my role model is gone, gone? Be duck back down the alley with some roly poly little bat faced girl. Which obviously, you know, was only a, was everywhere. Graceland released at the end of '86 and was everywhere in '87, and this album was re- recorded presumably, you know, at the start of '88. So. I think that's a I think that's a valid influence that I'm hearing there. Yeah, definitely. That that's a great point, Paul. Yeah, very much a kind of a a sort of return to to some kind of roots. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Going back to what you said at the, at the start of the, of the pod, Mike, about the this apocalyptic theme. There's an awful lot of God and God's <clears throat> recriminations on mankind sort of threading throughout the album and there's probably the majority of the songs isn't it that that have that theme not all of them um but it it is definitely a concept album isn't it right it's uh, it's a wrath if i could use that term mm. um you know a little piece of heaven kicks off predictable little ditty that doesn't give you much of a clue as to what direction the rest of the album will go it, it, but it's very it's pleasant yeah. And then, you know, to go from that into Don't Set Fire to the One I Love is pretty drastic. Mm. And uh, that's where I perk up, okay, what the hell are they going to say here? Yeah, you and that, that's definitely the first in the apocalyptic series, isn't it? That one. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, how does it go? Maybe that's. Kev's using a use of irony there, perhaps. He's 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 depicting this this ironic heaven, isn't he? And then suddenly it's 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 kind of but it's exploded and punctuated by this the threat of a bomb, I suppose. Don't set fire to the one I love. Is that your interpretation? That's, that's the way I take it. It's a horrible paranoia of the fear that we all have, if we're willing to admit it, that uh, nuclear warfare would decimate our loved ones and that's that a little too deep you know yeah melody is so vibrant and powerful but it's such a dark uh idea yeah it really is i like the idea of it more than i like the song actually mike to be honest i it, it it's fast paced but kind of one paced like uh-huh. like a lot of of godly and cream's 80s material i think where dynamics are, are, are limited, where everything kind of starts fast and furious and loud and stays fast, furious, and loud, and and I think I think there are only two chords in this song, Paul. If I'm right in thinking, yeah, it's not. I'm not um, so keen on that. Probably one of my least favourites. Oh, 
I quite like Golden Rings actually. I find it to be one of the catchiest songs on the album, and uh, a great vocal from from Kev, I think. Yes, I mean they're in isolation. They're always great vocals from Kev. He never yeah. puts in a bad vocal. It's just that if there's a dozen in a row, you know, uh, maybe you'd, you'd just like Graham or Eric to pop up or Lol. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's that's not going to happen anymore. G- Golden Rings um, has got that lyrical payoff, you know, towards the end of the song that you also hear and say under your thumb, and it, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it when the song gets brought into focus, you know the the woman will, you know, uh, won't give up the original ring from from the protagonist that made her happy. That's the yes. way I read it. And um, interesting that it's a, it's a song title, just like in Under Your Thumb. So uh, that's is, you can sort of see. Oh, a, that's a nice that's a nice parallel there. She sold the house and the rings as well, but the only one she could never sell was my golden ring. Yeah, I think that's you know it's a device which which Kevin uses. Can't think of any other examples, but there's a there's a definite parallel there between Under Your Thumb and, and Golden Rings. Yeah, definitely. It, it's interesting in terms of looking at this album as an apocalyptic thing. Um, you know, the threat of basically in the atomic bomb, seen in context of family and relationships and so on. It's it's interesting that we go from a little piece of heaven into don't set fire to the one I love into golden rings. Mm. Either the, the the running order of the album was was fairly random, or Keb's doing a movie type thing where he he's, he's setting up the scene of heaven. Then he he's he's saying God is about to wreak revenge on mankind for their evil doings, and then we have a hard cut into a, a, a very kind of micro view of the relationship and then we go into the macro view where again referring back to Mike's reference to to God's wrath uh, in crime and punishment I, I wonder what the, the running order actually means here but I wonder whether and I, I assume it's Kev kind of conceptualizing this I wonder why he did kind of dot around she said that she loved me and her love would always be true But there was something about her smile When I walked her down the aisle And gave her one golden ring Is it because he's, he's kind of directing it like a movie where we have these little scenes dotting around? We see God in his anger after we, we, we've just seen this love affair between this couple. What, what do you think? Am I talking utter rubbish? Now, I think your explanation is really interesting because uh, Golden Rings to me was similar to A Little Piece of Heaven in the fact that it's an accessible melody, isn't very demanding lyrically, uh, pleasant song with gorgeous vocal work, but it certainly mm-hmm. isn't the you know bleak uh, rapture, as yeah. it were. But it's setting up the emotional impact mm-hmm. of the world ending, isn't it, in a way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we could be overthinking. It might just be that they had a couple of extra songs around which they just wanted to put on the album. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, you know, I've known obviously since the beginning that you know the apocalypse is the theme of this record. But when I sort of started to uh, listen a bit less like that and listen to the individual songs, I actually like this record a lot more. I mm. find it's a bit 
that it's a bit freer when you don't have to tie everything to this one theme. Do you know what I mean? They, they made the, made some of the individual songs a bit more enjoyable. They breathed a bit more. No, I, I agree, Paul. And honestly, I think I've got podcast itis in in, <laughs> in having to. No, honestly, having to kind of um, forcing myself to analyse everything, and I, I I kind of enjoy searching for the the apocalyptic meaning in the record. Mm, yeah. But I'm with you. Uh, uh, when I just switch off. And Sally comes in and says, oh, this is good. Who's that singing? Yeah. And I say, it's Kevin Godley. And she says, oh, yeah, yeah. he's a good singer, isn't he? And, 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 <laughs> and, and, then, and, and then I switch off and, and think, actually, yeah, this is quite a, quite a nice, soulful album. Um, hmm. But, of course, we're always looking for, for deeper meaning. Yes, which, you know, by and large, is usually there. Well, our problem is we came in with consequences. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, exactly. And there couldn't be more overthinking possible, could there, than that? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Is anyone, is anyone with me that, that Crime and Punishment is the best song on the album? It's Kevin's favourite. Um, that's what he says in Space Cake, which is interesting. Yep. Um, Not yours, though, Paul. Not mine, but... It, it's good, uh, a bit long maybe, but um, I yeah, guess I've, I've said the same actually. What do you think, Mike? Well, to me, it was getting into the nitty gritty at that point. You know, we must pay for our sins, so to speak. You know, there's no hiding place. Um, I'm not a religious person at all, but as I listen to the song, I can clearly see all of us having to answer for our mistakes and transgressions. You know. Um, Will God's revenge be sweet and will the punishment fit the crime? There's yeah. a term for it. I don't know, rapture or wrath or whatever, but I can't think of it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Kevin's singing on this, and throughout the album for that matter, just gives me absolute chills. It's just superb. <laughs> Nailed it, really, Mike. For me, and there's some amazing harmonica playing on this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so so many religious references on this record. The fact that it starts and ends with with the Latin, you know, from the Catholic Mass, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A real sense of irony, and of course, we've mentioned many times, haven't we, uh, of Kevin's use of religious references throughout his songwriting. Sometimes it's Jewish, sometimes it's Christian, sometimes it's both together, sometimes they're both in, con- in conflict with each other. Mm. Um, you know, for example, in Punch Bag and, and, and so on. Uh, but in this one, it, there's a, a real sense of menace, I feel. For what it's worth, I think he possibly means every word he says. And the reason I say that is remember when we when we interviewed him last year sean he said something like almost matter of factly yeah i think our time on this planet is nearly up remember that i do Uh, and that's quite that was quite a chilling moment wasn't it the the fact that he was you know said it in such a measured you know not a throwaway tone i don't mean that but you know the, the way he said it was quite chilling yes and i think he believes that and therefore extrapolating backwards you know it might one can imagine that he really meant 
every word when he sang that song. Totally. We didn't even ask him or, or dare to ask him about his religious beliefs, but I, I get a strong sense from Kevin that he, he does believe in, in some form of God. And, and from mm. this album, we, we get a really strong sense that he's intensely aware of the judgment of God about to to bring down vengeance on on mankind and that that's a that's, that's a chilling thought and it's interesting that it seems that muscle memory appears if if we're not over imagining it appears to be echoing those themes from what we were lucky enough to hear it seems hmm. that way doesn't it yeah it does he may Yeah, a, a really atmospheric track, this, and, and I, I really, really enjoy it. The next track, of course, carries on that theme, and it, I suppose it's the first one that lays open the, the actual theme of the album in terms of nuclear war, dropping the atomic bomb. It's the first track that kind of lays it bare and, and makes it very obvious. The Big Bang. sitting on the throne the other day, Cloud. Yeah. He was looking for something important to do. Something big and loud. Big bang. A big bang. A big bang when the plane that And uh, this is one of the tracks that I do enjoy, if only for its infectious, almost sort of old fashioned soul style. Well, one, uh, the tune is clearly about creation and what we humans did with all that. Yeah. You know, the, the church was empty. They were praying to a gun. They're making big bangs of their own. No real hidden meanings in these lyrics. So pretty easy to figure out. Yeah. <laughs> Blame it on that asshole in the White House down there. It's quite topical. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. <laughs> after all these years. From a musical standpoint, yeah, it's clearly influenced by gospel. I almost feel like standing up and flailing my arms in the aisles, you know, when I hear it. But, uh, yeah, I, I, fun. I, I particularly like the kind of lyric premise of this one in that, the, yes, we're referring to, to God's Big Bang or whoever's Big Bang creating the universe. And then I think Kev's doing a clever thing where he, he uses the Big Bang as a, as a pun and says that the devil was mm -hmm. given the job of looking after man and the fire and the water and the air, but he used the power to change the plan and blame it on that asshole in the White House down there, like you were referring to. So the Big Bang isn't the creation, the Big Bang becomes the destruction of mankind. And I think that's a really clever lyric idea. Brilliant. The devil was given the job of looking after man and the fire and the water and the air. I just like the track musically. Uh, it's kind of in your face uh, rock and roll, really, isn't it? Yes. Um, the vocal suits it really well. Um, uh, yeah, it's a nice palate cleanser after after the you know. I mean, it's dark in a different way. It's dark lyrically, but musically, it's it's, it's a lot it's of nice. fun, isn't it? Musically, yeah. It, it kind branch. of reminds me of Land of a Thousand Dances. Oh yeah. A little yeah. bit of um, a little bit of Riot and Cell Block Number Nine. It's, it's got that very yeah. kind of balls out 
rock and roll, like you say, that kind of soul, mid 60s sort of soul. Um, and yeah, I think I think it's infectious. I bet he had the ball singing it. <laughs> Definitely. Side two starts with another up-tempo one that really annoys the hell out of me. I think, oh, it, was, yeah. I think it was a single as well, 10,000 Angels. Love this song. Really? Okay. Hey, yes, come on, you go, Mike. Tell us why you love it. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. It just gets you right from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, clearly gospel infused, and that's a genre I'm not particularly enthralled with. But yeah. they have me at the, by the throat at this point. I'm not questioning anything. I'm just along for the ride. <laughs> uh, it, it's just uh, I saw them. I saw them. Damn. You know, I'm ready to use uh, worse expletives for this. It just. <laughs> Fucking gets me. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> so uh, there's a positive feel in the lyrics. You know, if you if you believe in angels, uh, I would certainly want them coming after me, especially with the devil close behind. Um, such a <laughs> raucous romp, though, slightly reminiscent of Under Your Thumb, with the uh, you know the repetitive do 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 do. It's almost that. That, exactly, that, uh, you, you've echoed my 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 notes. I've scribbled the, down on that one, Mike. It, it's got that, that kind of yeah, exactly. That drum machine, that kind of yes, it's very yes. insistent, isn't it? Uh, I was just going to add that Kevin's exceptional drum blasts throughout this song. He's you know, really an outstanding drummer. Yeah. There is, a, I'm sure, a drum machine going, but he's, you know, hitting these little uh, blasts that I really enjoy. No, I, yeah. I agree. That there's a, a sense of, of organicness, isn't there, about the instrumentation? Mm-hmm. It's not just that kind of ism-ism, birds of prey drum machine. There's definitely right. the feeling of, of, of a real band. I'm sure this was recorded at Lol's house, so maybe he 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 dug into his cellar um, and created a bigger space so that Kev could bring his kit down. I, I, mm-hmm. I can't make out in my mind how they'd have done that. Are you talking about the whole album, or there's just this track, Sean? It's the whole album's recorded and mixed, and I, I'm quoting from the the sleeve notes here. Recorded and mixed on an old 16 track at home, which is precisely the, the recording arrangement that they had for all of their 80s albums on this particular song doesn't it almost sound like like uh, he may not have a complete kit and he's i think he's really smacking a snare with the uh, brushes yeah no i agree you, i agree i think that's probably that would explain it wouldn't it because there's that would be you know, uh, or maybe they rearrange your furniture so they got his kit in. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a drum kit on the album. Not on every track, yeah. but he's definitely yes. playing a drum kit. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but I agree with you on this one, Mike. Is that 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 snare is is very very nice. It drives along. It reminds me of this kind of I don't know. It's some kind of wacky Wild West cowboy music. Really, this track. Um, yes. Which 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 kind of puts me off it. Uh, I enjoy the, the energy of it, 
but musically it just uh, it turns me off if I'm honest. It sounds like it sounds like Marty Robbins or something like that, you know. Yeah. Uh, I I like this song. It goes up a gear for me when it uh, shifts into I think a few minor chords in the in the, you know halfway through. I saw them. Yeah. I really I, that's the part I like best. Yeah, it, it outstays it well. It's welcome though for me, Paul. There's a great a cappella section, but it just goes on and on and on and on. And when he's saying, "I saw them, I saw them, I saw them," and I'm thinking, "Yeah, I know you saw them. Just you know, <laughs> slim it down to you know two minutes forty or something, and, and get on with with something nice like Sweet Memory." Ah, uh, yeah, but but see, that's what they're doing. Their whole that that that, that sort of it's tension and release because that sort that repeated saw them, saw them, saw them. That's be- before the shift into the minor, so it, it sounds all the sweeter when they go yeah, there. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, but it's it's um, it's about over-egging for me, Paul. Here, they know what they're doing. They're professionals, these people, you know. Yeah, but it's not it's not as satisfying as she screamed and screamed and screamed, is it? It's not it's not that kind of quality. Well, I guess not quite that kind of quality maybe but it's I, I like it I okay like it. no okay no, no I, I respect that are you with me that sweet memory is one of the nicest songs on the album oh without a doubt yeah but you know these these occasions when you have a, a, a tune that's reminiscent of another one wedding bells well, no, yeah, Wedding Bells Part 2, rhythm-wise, but there's there's a closer connection. I'm going to throw this one, and we're going to have to dig this one out from YouTube. Um, there was a, a film made called Digby, The Biggest Dog in the World. Oh, which, yeah, which, with, with with Jim, what's his name, from Carry On? Very good, Sean. Jim, Jim Hale. Dale and, Jim uh, Dale, yeah, yeah. Spike, Jim, Jim Dale, Spike Milligan. But the theme from that, which was written by Edwin Astley, I'm just reading my notes here. Oh, my word. Um sounds very like Sweet Memory. Um, I mean, it's a sort of recognisable pattern, but uh, the first time I heard Sweet Memory, I just thought of um, Digby, the biggest dog in the world, and maybe we can dig (laughs) dig out that uh, that clip. When I saw you there with your long shaggy hair on There's a shadow I am familiar with the film of which you speak, Paul. Okay. I don't. I don't remember hey, the theme the tune. Do you think? Do you think Kev or Lol would have been? You know, would they have been fans of that film? Could this just, know, just be a, a massive coincidence? It's funny where things can come from. You know, Glenn Tilbrook can never listen to uh, "Goodbye Girl," the song he wrote with Squeeze, because yeah. he was somebody pointed out years after that he'd rewritten note for note the theme from the Muppet Show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <my. laughs> oh, that's marvellous! So, so you don't know where your influences are going to come from. It's a very dangerous thing having open ears, you know. Shall we say the similarities to Digby, notwithstanding? I think this is just a lovely song. I think the melodies 
really nice. The chorus is great. It's it's a kind of a, a standard song, and Godney and Cream's work is is fairly thin on what we could call standard songs like this. It, yes, agreed. It, it's incredibly pleasant, um, but pleasant meant as a a compliment. And it's loosely about death as well, which gives it a, a poignancy, I think. And it's it's less frenetic than the two songs that have come before, so it really does come as a welcome relief. So, and, and obviously the, the bass harmonica parts in it punctuate it, I think, really, really superbly. So the, very much a, a highlight of the album for me. Okay, and before we ask Mike, uh, our American correspondent number one, to chip in, we should say that Panny, our uh, our other American correspondent at the moment, he loves this song and it's his favourite on the album. But he want, he wanted us to say that, didn't he? That's right. Yeah, and and um, Panny, I, I salute you for that one. This Mike, what do you want to say about uh, Sweet Memory for us? Oh, I don't know who Digby is, but uh, <laughs> this uh, beautiful, somewhat, it, uh, yeah, I have, to, I have to dig him up. Uh, this beautiful, somewhat sad, melancholy tune holds a special place in my heart because when my mother passed away, mm. I produced a tribute video for her, for my family, and I used this cut as the oh. background music. It fit perfectly. Um, the song structure and musicianship don't remind me of anything Godling Cream had done before, so it was such a pleasure to hear them venture into somewhat uncharted territory. Extremely effective at that. I, I, it is a gorgeous piece of music. Maybe my favorite as well. Oh, that's well, a, that's a very very sweet anecdote, Mike. Very moving. So for me, Sweet Memory is, is, is the last moment of sweetness on, on the album. I think the, the last three tracks for me just irritate more than anything else. We've got Air Force One, Last Page of History and Desperate Times. And they're all very much in, in that theme of the threat of the atomic bomb destruction and everything and, and literally history ending. Um, but I think Air Force One is probably my very least favourite track. Or on the album. Uh, it just seems to grate from start to finish. Come in, come in, Air Force One. Come in, come in, one. one. Come in, come in, Air Force One. Come in, come in, one. I'm surprised to you say that, Sean, because it's the most 10cc track, isn't it? Most 10cc like track. Well, we have a reference to a bomb on a plane. No, no, I didn't just mean that. I meant this sort of musically, it's a bit less band oriented. That you know, it's a it's a bit of a throwback, mm. not just to Godly and Cream, but to to Tennessee C somehow. Yeah, there, there are some echoes. Yeah, and I'm, I'm I'm kind of with you. There there are some echoes. The guitar riff kind of echoes Blint's tune. Uh, yeah, have you noticed that big guitar chord on the upbeat? Yeah, yeah, Definitely, definitely. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of quite like that, but there's just... The, the syncopated intro really, really grates on me. Um, the military snare, of course, kind of echoes Blint's tune as well. Yeah. Um, but to me, it just feels like a, a cynical rewrite of Clockwork Creep, and it just, it just doesn't do it for me. 
Well, that's okay. <laughs> So, Mike, Air Force One, I mean, you are a compatriot of, of those who have flown in Air Force One. <laughs> oh, certainly. Do you, do you share the glory? I uh, see. It's, it's almost a humorous description of the president trapped on Air Force One because there's nowhere for him to land. And I'm assuming he's the reason he can't land <laughs> due to the horrific situation he no <laughs> doubt helped to unleash on the world. Um <laughs> Mankind can't do anything to avoid complete destruction, and no one, including the so-called leaders, uh, will be saved. Pretty bleak mm. stuff. Yes. It has that dark atmosphere, and uh, some of the tempo kind of reminds me of Lonnie from Ismism. Do, oh, okay. do, 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 do. Has a similar beat and overall feel, but eh, not one of my favorites on the album. Last Page of History really is my least favourite track on the album, if only wow. for that awful, awful kind of repeated refrain where they go, rolling down the road again. It's the history, the last page of history. history. You know it's written in the book. History. We're making television history. history. So take a long last look. I like that because they're so cheeky. They borrow those notes from the French national anthem. Haven't yes, they? of course. Uh, or is it? Or is it? Is is there some kind of American Civil War tune that echoes that? I thought mic? it was. I thought it was from that Happy Trails, the Roy Rogers thing, but that's at the end of the song. Happy Trails to you. Um, uh-huh. But I know that we're on the road again. I knew that came from something, but I'm. It does. It does sound like. All, all yeah, right. it does sound like La Marseillaise. It does, and maybe they're, maybe it's it's Kevin and Law kind of having a pop at, at nationalism or something like that. Is that that song that starts uh, "All You Need Is Love" from yes. the Beatles? Yes. yes. Okay. Okay. I agree. For them chucking it in, it Paul, it reminds me of, and I might be alienating you here, Mike. Having mentioned Jim Dale and his Digby, the biggest dog <laughs> in the world. We had the carry-on <laughs> films in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Mike. These kind of very sort of th- these films full of sexual innuendo, very, very British. And the, the soundtracks for those films were always incredibly cheesy. And every time there was a funny bit, they'd always they'd always throw in these kind of musical tropes. Um, like, for example, pop goes the weasel. <laughs> I can't do that. I can't do the sound effect. This kind of reminds me of that, where he's going rolling down the road again. It's almost like a carry-on film, where you can you can imagine soldiers marching along, saluting, and then their pants falling down. I see that. Yeah, and that might be me taking the, the analogy too far, but honestly, it just kind of just it just grates. I'm sorry to hear it's that. Okay. Because, I don't know. It really blew my socks off. This energetic performance that, and it leaves nothing to the imagination. 
nothing ambiguous going on here. It's like the main statement of the album. You know, we're on the last page of history. Yes. And with the subject so grim, only Gandhi and Cream can make it sound so fun and almost hilarious. <laughs> That's a good <laughs> I mean, point, well, actually. And the, the title yeah, it, the title is wonderful, isn't it? The, the last page in history. It's wonderful. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be famous. I'm going to be rich. You're going to be one dead son of a bitch. That is so... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> On an aggressive and blunt soundtrack like that, it's the creativity I crave from Kevin and Lowell. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great lyric, actually. Um, for me, the delivery of it isn't isn't what the title and the lyrics are promising, really. Uh, maybe I, w- I want it to deliver itself in a different way. In desperate times are what we live in Desperate measures are called for What are your feelings, boys, on uh, the last track, Desperate Times? The coda, isn't it? Um, it it's, it's okay. I mean, if it was a tr- truly brilliant song, it would be a great coda to the album, I suppose. It, it's all right. It's a little predictable. It's nice to hear a piano ballad. Yes. Must be Lowell playing it. But, you know, it doesn't sound like Lowell playing the piano. It sounds a bit too generic. But I guess it must be him playing it. He's obviously a great player. Yeah, there's, there's so no one else. Be... There's no one else credited with with keyboards on the album, Paul. Actually, no. no so maybe he just decided to play in that style. It, I don't know. It just got a nagging suspicion. It doesn't sound like him because I'm so used to hearing him play the piano. Yes. But then again, it's a few years, few years at this point since we'd actually heard him. Sit down and play a piano. Maybe, maybe even ten, you know. So, so maybe, maybe his style had changed. Um, it's uh, it's okay. I think the vocals, are, backing vocals, vocals. I'm sorry, are a little bit overcooked. They start they start embellishing themselves a little bit early. I'm sort of nitpicking here, yeah. but I guess. But it's, is it? It's, it's a deliberate gospel. Uh, a deliberate mm-hmm. gospel influence, isn't it? They say it's too late. Too late. It's too late. It's too late. It's too late to stop. They say it's too late. Yes, but it's neither a parody nor a, a, a proper deployment of that style. It kind mm. of falls in between the two, yeah. I think. Uh, you know, it's okay. Not, not really one of my favourites on the record. The end coda, I think, is quite powerful, at least lyrically, where they're saying, they say it's too late, it's too late to stop. To stop. And they keep repeating that, don't they? It's too late to stop. Mm-hmm. And then the final line, this kind of little array of light of hope, it's not too late. And, and I yeah, think, I think yeah. that's, that's a lovely moment for me. Yes, uh, you're right, Sean. I'd forgotten that. That that is nice. Yeah. Say it's too late to stop. Say it's too late to stop. It's not too This was the least favorite song for me. Um, and I'm not that crazy about it to this day, but mm-hmm. but I don't like slow songs that much. I tend to lean toward energy, power, and force, no matter Beatles, yes, split ends, please. But this slow, soulful, 
heartfelt positive message is a very nice way to end the album um after the musical assault of some of the other songs i was kind of ready for this thoughtful and encouraging conclusion you know mm-hmm. the, as you said paul uh they say it's too late to stop it's not too late so after the songs like don't set fire crime and punishment uh, last page of history which i was tempted to put a gun to my head and say get me the hell out of here but desperate <laughs> times <laughs> desperate times says hold up as imperfect as the world is, we can all make changes and blah, 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 and add a few more pages to the last page of history. Yeah. That's the way I see it, but still not one of my favorites. Nicely said, Mike. Thank you. So, Paul, sadly, we've had to say goodnight to Mike, um, who's uh, off to work, I think which is what people, <laughs> normal people do during the day when, uh, when other people are spending their evenings uh, making podcasts. But uh, it's only really the decent thing to do to talk about some of these B-sides that are knocking around. Um, I, I've not given Disc 5, a body of work, many spins, I have to say. I've done it more often in, in recent weeks, just to kind of do some mopping up, really, and see if there are any hidden gems. But I'm not hearing any particular hidden gems of, of the B-sides from the Goodbye Blue Sky album, Paul. What do you think of those three Rhino Rhino, Hidden Heartache and Can't Sleep? What do you think? Well, they're not, they're not bad. They, they put the uh, the rest of the album into a bit of a sharper relief, perhaps. Rhino Rhino, which you know I hadn't heard until very recently, and I thought... It might just be a kind of ad hoc name given to some kind of instrumental. Actually, is about a rhinoceros, isn't it? it yes, appears. it is. Which is, and it it, it could be um, one of those vehicles careering down the, the highway, you know, on the on the last page of history or something like that. Mm. It's part of it's part of the fleeing horde um, from the apocalypse, perhaps. The sta- um, the stampede from consequences, even. Yeah, it's yeah, that's right. It's why it's one of the one of the rhinos still running around eleven years later. That's right. I'm waiting for the rhino side uh, with the gamekeepers just about to shoot him dead, isn't he? Yeah. Is rhino sides a made-up word, isn't it? It's got to be. I, th- I think that's a godly joke. Yeah, I hope so. I hope it's never been a thing in real life, let's put it that way. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a B-side, isn't it? I don't, I don't have a, a, a great deal to say uh, other than that. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like the bass harmonica riff at the start, actually, but that's kind of where my my enjoyment of the song starts and, uh, and ends, really. I, I quite like the sort of lolloping sort of country and western rap that that kevin's doing uh and he he obviously cares about this subject he's commenting on conservation isn't he and and pointless uh killing of endangered species uh but again it's it's one of those songs where the, the message is great the lyrics are quite inventive i suppose but the treatment just doesn't carry the message as well as it could i don't think yeah, that's right. 
Goldie and Cream and their later albums actually allowed us, I guess, to see a bit more of the working process in that we did get some some outtakes. Mm. If you think back to their kind of inverted commas, masterworks, consequences, and L, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there weren't really any B-sides or outtakes. No. Uh, they, they only started to appear later. So um, uh, that makes the whole... Uh, I mean that's an ordinary thing. You'd you'd always get you'd record you'd generally record more material than you used on the album. Every, yes. everybody does that. So it just means it's a little bit more conventional. Mm. Uh, and and we're getting these extra tracks. That's right. There are some instrumentation bits in there that I do enjoy, actually. Uh, there's mm-hmm. the, the double bass, for a start. Um, and Lowell's playing a, a kind of a cheesy kind of B3 organ sound, uh, which yeah, I quite like. Right. And I think there's some great drumming. The rhythm guitar is nice. And, you know, the harmonica riff is, is catchy and groovy. So it's not a bad track, actually. And I much prefer it to Can't Sleep, which was uh, one of two B-sides on 10,000 Angels, wasn't it? Well, that other way around for me, really? actually. That, yeah, you mentioned the drumming. I really like the drumming on I Can't Sleep. It's slightly out of control. It's a slightly unusual performance for, for Kev, almost as almost as if he's playing live. Um, so I know he is playing live, but what I mean is almost as if he's playing in a, in a concert setting or something. Okay. Isn't really, it, it, sorry, Paul, isn't it a drum machine yeah? on that one? I don't think so. Well, uh, one of us got to be wrong if we. If, yeah, if I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to re-listen to that. I'm I'm hearing a real drum track, perhaps with some overdubs. Uh, it doesn't sound. Yeah, you know, maybe I haven't. I haven't listened to it that closely, but I just. I enjoyed the how energised that performance was. It sounded like real drums to me. Okay. But, you know, stand to be corrected. I also like the the work of the the harmonicas there, sounding like guitars. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice aggressive half harp riff, isn't it? There. Yeah, um, like a guitar arpeggio, but it, it, you know, using a, a harmonica, uh, almost unvet unvarying that pattern all the way through, and really using it like an electric guitar. I yeah, really yeah. Like that. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, 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 yeah, okay. I, for me, it's a bit of a kind of one riff throwaway. Yeah, it only only goes on for two. It's short, isn't it? Yeah. Two and a bit minutes. And um, yeah, I, I, I like what it does. I, you know, for my money. Um, we're sort of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic here, but I, <laughs> I, I, I prefer it uh, to Rhino Rhino, if that means anything. OK, no, no problem. And I think I prefer Hidden Heartbeat to both of them, actually. Yeah, in that it's an attempt at a... 
a more traditional kind of song structure. Although I think if you, if you look um, beneath the surface, yeah, it's still quite simplified. It's it's kind of a two chord job with a very sophisticated uh, backing. If if you think of the distance, lol has come assuming it's lol here you know has come from ismism still with uh, an electronic palette of sounds if you like yes it's, it's a long way from um sale of the century or joey's camel <laughs> yeah. to hidden heartbeat yeah instrumentation wise although again whether that means a great deal i don't know because i don't think the song is is that strong it, no. it's a two chord job Great singing from from Kevin. He always manages to find something inventive. It's 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 great vocal performance. It really some... is. He's trying very very hard, isn't isn't he, to to make it a really good soul performance. Oh, it is a good soul performance. I mean, undoubtedly, yeah. The, the, some of the little inflections he uses, kind of. Draw, drawing on soul, I won't call them tropes, mm. but because they're. Because oh, no, I they're think more, you're right. I think you're right. They're more felt than that, though. I think they're. I think they're sort of this. The singing is genuine, but um, I'm always banging on about songs. But you know, you can only go so far if if yeah. if, if, if the heart of the song uh, it doesn't contain that much. And I, I yeah, just I, I'm think, with you. I, I, I yeah. when I was listening to it the other day, I thought this is a pretty standard verse and, 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 and lyric really uh, yeah. but I like I like the sound of it and, I, and I'm with you that Lowell's, Lowell's little toolkit of sounds is, is richer now and th- this song could well belong on Birds of Prey actually couldn't it with that kind of rich electronic sound toolbox um, but uh, unfortunately some of those electronic sounds are a little bit cheesy, the brass stabs for example, probably best left alone if you're going to be soulful, you, I think you need a, a horn section. Quite like those. Do you? He, he sound, he sound, they, they, they're art of noise-ish, aren't they? Yes, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. <laughs> and and, um, and Lowell does an yeah, actual but... guitar solo as well, which is quite a rarity, isn't it, in the 80s? Yeah, it's almost a goodbye, really, isn't it? Because yeah. that song, it's a bit of a throwback to their earlier work in some ways. It, mm. It's sort of got nice warm chords and it's it's quite, is a gentleness to it or something, which, yes. which isn't really prevalent in, in much of Goodbye Blue Sky. Yeah, uh, which is a, yes, a little bit brash, isn't it? Yeah, and with Lowell's guitar solo, it's, it's a very understated goodbye mm. musically from from the partnership and to the partnership maybe i mean i don't know when it was recorded in relation to the rest of the stuff no it's, to me it sounds like it was recorded before goodbye blue sky simply because yeah. of the the sort of sonic comparison to, to birds of prey really and the fact that there there aren't the backing vocalists and there aren't the, the harmonicas on there so i'm, yeah. I'm just assuming really We did forget to talk about a B-side um, when we were talking about the Birds of Prey album, Paul. I completely forgot to mention Welcome to Breakfast Television. Good morning. 
Uh, yeah, an, an oversight of, of sorts. I mean, yes, I do remember <laughs> Well, yeah, of that. sorts. <laughs> well, I do remember that track from the time, and Breakfast Television was new, wasn't it, in mm. 1983, before there was 24-hour programming all over the place. Yes. So at the time, the idea of saturating the channels by talking about anything was quite new. Mm. Of course, that's that's just everywhere now. So th- it's, a, it's a bit of an out outmoded joke or something. It's all right, isn't it? With a sort of school teacher-ish voice. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's it's okay. Yes, he's kind of, he's really sneering down his nose, isn't he, at, at breakfast telly? Um, <laughs> yeah, he's got, he's got no respect for it. And I love, apart from the fact that I think it's, it's, it's jaunty and it's funny and it's completely silly, completely throwaway, they must have had real fun smashing a telly up against a wall in Surrey. Welcome to a world of patterns. When you turn on the television, we'll dump it in your lap. Oh, did they actually do that? Well, I don't know, unless it's a sound effect. Well, yes, they probably did smash a telly, I should think. (laughs) uh, I'd forgotten one. This track reminds me oddly of uh, Tommy's Holiday Camp. Yes, yes. Which I I think, didn't Keith Moon write that? Or was it John Entwistle? It was one of the weird songs. Well, Keith Uh, Keith Moon sang it, didn't he? Yeah, or did John Entwistle write it? Or maybe he wrote another couple of ones. I'm not quite yeah. sure. It, what, what doesn't sound like the rest of the, the album. Yeah. But Good it, morning, that, campers. Yeah, that's the one. And with that funny, um, slightly hysterical vocal approach. That, for yeah. some reason, <laughs> the, the two tracks are reminiscent of each other. <laughs> no, I like, I like the comparison there, Paul. Yeah, so I'd rather have Welcome to Breakfast Telly in my life, even though it is completely fluffy and throwaway. It's one of those things where, you know, Mike was saying Godly and Cream can do no wrong. Yes, he not, does not say sh- that. Yeah, not sure I 100% agree with that, Mike, but I get your exact point in that there's always, always something interesting, whether it is something wacky and off the wall about the music track or you're pretty much guaranteed that Kevin will come up with something quite remarkable in the lyrics. Live from Smithfield Market, where we'll show you how to pluck a chicken while cleaning vomit off the carpet. Meet the Minister of Transport, good evening, and a junky skinhead priest. Hear them talk about the pros and cons of Myra Hindley being released. Yeah, there's there's always an angle, isn't there? Yeah. Even if, it, even if it's not... Um, a song that will that will draw you back many times. There's always something when you hear the idea at least once. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe some of those things are only designed to be thrown away once you once you've um, consumed them, perhaps. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It's been really enjoyable talking about the Godly and Cream '80s albums, hasn't it, Paul? And lovely to have Mike's contribution. Oh, Mike was was fabulous. Um, lovely to hear that uh, real enthusiasm and, and insight, of course. Yeah, I'm rather sad now. Um, at the time, you know, the, 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 the split between Kevin Lowell kind of passed unnoticed in that I, I don't believe they um, made any kind of official statement. Um, and now we're reliving that 
split. It is it is rather sad, uh, although we we kind of know from the biographical details that, that it had reached a natural end. Yes, yeah, so I think they they grew apart as opposed to being ripped apart, didn't they? They did, but it's still a little bit sad that that. that that this fantastic creative alliance, which lasted more than 25 years, mm. just just ended and, and has never been put back together again. But that's that's the way it goes. I suppose 25 years is pretty good. It, well, wow. And, and look at the body of work, literally. <laughs> to coin a phrase, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah didn't, didn't they give us some fantastic stuff? They really did. And um, thank you, Kevin and Lol. Uh, flawed geniuses, and we will love you forever. Here, here. been listening to the consequences podcast produced by paul mcnulty and sean mccreevy thanks for listening